welcome to The Feathered Desert, a podcast all about desert bird feeding in the southwestern region of the United States. Well, hello. Welcome to The Feathered Desert. This is Cheryl, and Kirsten and I today are going to do a follow-up podcast about MODIS. Recently, we did um, a podcast explaining what MODIS was and how it's used in the scientific birding community. And today, we're going to discuss how MODIS is at work for Arizona birds. So, MODIS actually, just to uh, um, regress a little bit and go over it, it is a radio tracking system, and more towers are being placed in Arizona and possibly one at the Gilbert Riparian Water Ranch. And I wanted to revisit this podcast because I found actual research studies using MODIS that has an impact on Arizona birds. And it's exciting to see the impacts of this new technology and how it is advancing research in bird studies. Yes, I think that's very cool. If we get one at the Gilbert Riparian Water Ranch, that'd be exciting. It will, to see what birds come through. Yes. Yeah. Because we do have some strange things that come through, and if they're radio tracked, could answer some questions for our mysteries of what these birds are doing. And I think with the the climate changing and weather storms, I think more are going to come into that area. Yep, I think so too. So now we're going to start off with purple martins. And those of us who, or those of you that follow us, we did do a podcast talking about purple martins in the area because I know we were very surprised to find out we actually had purple martins. And they are actually going to benefit, hopefully, from this information from a modus tower. So if you have ever lived on the East Coast or in the Midwest of the U.S., you've seen purple martins and the colonial-style birdhouses they like to nest in. Well, a little backstory about these guys before we continue. Purple martins are insectivorous, which means they're insect eaters. And that has made them very vulnerable to the pesticides that we use in our yards. And, of course, the pesticides that are used in our farming and vast quantities of land. So their numbers were very, they were declining terribly in the U.S. until citizen science got involved. So people who enjoyed seeing the birds and understood their importance to local insect control, started placing the correct nesting boxes that these birds like. They are colonial nesters, so they need to be next door to their neighbors. And these citizen scientists, they monitored the boxes, they eliminated pesticide use on their properties, they kept their cats indoors, all the things that we tell you helps our songbirds. And over time, the populations of the purple martins bounced back in the United States overall. So why are we talking about them specifically? Because their numbers are still in decline, and scientists don't really know why. After all these things we did to help them out, we thought they were, um, we thought this was working out for them. But it seems that they're still on decline. So purple martins have been studied extensively in North America, and but the scientific knowledge tapers off when they fly south. Where do they go? What routes do they take? And what critical habitat lies along the way remain a mystery. So the marathon journeys that these birds undertake every year compounds the risk to their survival. 
So Arizona, if you remember, listeners, has its own subspecies of purple martin, and they prefer to nest in saguaro cacti in the southern part of our state. So Arizona purple martins spend their winter where? Where where do they spend their winter? They take a similar, oh my goodness, my words today. <laughs> they take a similar marathon journey as the same ones who summer east of the Mississippi River. Okay, so I know, get to the point. So the point <laughs> is Brazil. Just off the beaten path, there's a slice, slice of land sitting midstream in Brazil's Rio Negro, which is the River Black, actually, is, yes. is an island, and it's an island locally known as, I'm going to totally screw this up, Ahela do Camaro, Camaro, Camaro. I don't know. I don't speak Portuguese, so no. it sounds decently good to me. I'm so sorry, but every year this island is submerged um, from about March um, to about April, and the only treetops and only treetops poke above the surface, and there in those treetops are purple purple martins. Now, Modus helps to locate this tiny island of 12 acres, slightly larger than Yankee Stadium. And how do you ask? Well, back in the U.S., U.S. scientists, with the help of those volunteers who have those colonial nesting boxes for purple martins, have been tagging those purple martins, adults and fledglings, with radio tags. And these radio tags ping the Modus Towers as they travel south. And if you listen to that podcast, it does mention that Brazil was one of the cooperating 31 countries that had towers. And just by chance, um, there was a tower placed near this island. And scientists looked at the MODIS network tracking and thought, huh, where is that? And it turns out that MODIS revealed to scientists a space that is host to a concentration of roughly 250,000 purple martins. And between February and April, it's one of the largest concentrations of purple martins that have ever been discovered. Its its significance isn't just its size, however, but also the pivotal role the roost may play in the bird's long-distance migration. The island could be the staging point or the launch pad for many as 9.3 million purple martins that funnel through South, through South America to North America, and then back again. Scientists are tagging purple martins on this tiny island so that they can trace birds coming and going to see where these birds, these birds journey to breed. Now it's easier for them to tag at this, on this island it turns out, because it's partially submerged. And so they yeah. just go with these boats, and they just, um, the purple martins don't seem to be too bothered by the scientists. They take them off the branches. They just reach out, take, collect the birds, tag them, and put them back. It's, it's wow. not easier than trying to do fledglings and breeding pairs in the U.S. So they're getting a lot more birds tagged. That's cool. It is cool, and it was a fascinating. It's fa- fascinating information. 
So let's head to Arizona. So, oh, excuse me. So some of the purple martins that they're tagging on this island in Brazil are going to head to Arizona, and some are going to head to the east coast of the U.S. And this is important to the purple Arizona purple martins because of them being a subspecies. They like to nest in the sororal cactuses that are 40 feet high. And it, like I said, it's easier um, to tag them while they're, you know, only a few feet, a few inches from the scientists than it is when they're 40 feet up in the, up in the sky. And scientists are excited to trace the movements of these birds to figure out what they're eating and analyze whether they've been contaminated by pesticides and other pollutants. And we can learn something about how they're doing in Brazil. And further south, because remember, they're not sure if this this island doesn't have 903 million purple martins. It only houses up to 250,000 at one time. So birds are moving through, some are staying, and, and some are going further south. Cool. They, yeah. But scientists feel that by taking a closer look at the birds onto this on this small island... They hope to glean insights that can help secure the future of the entire species. And any discoveries they make will help uncover what's behind the decline of other songbirds, especially those that are aerial insect eaters. Wow, that's really, really interesting. Yeah, there's a lot of information too, but it was it's very interesting. Yeah, it's cool. Very, very cool. All right, so we've heard a little bit about Purple Martins. Let's talk about the American Kestrel. You've hopefully all caught a glimpse of the American Kestrel because we do have them here in Arizona all year long. They do move within the state, though, so they don't necessarily stay in the same place all year long, but they stay within our borders. So once again, this bird is on the decline here, of course, due to loss of habitat, pesticide use, and the increase in the population of Cooper's hawks. And those are just a few challenges that this small falcon is facing. And scientists are racing to understand why this bird is continuing to disappear from our skies. So let's, let's move to Texas, where there is a project that outfits kestrels with radio trackers to glean how they move on their wintering grounds and where they breed come spring. So the exact paths kestrel kestrels take and the ultimate winter destinations for many of these populations are still a mystery. Their smaller scale movements are also an enigma. So researcher Maddie Kaleta, I apologize if I say that incorrectly, (laughs) stated in an article for Audubon Society that we know kestrels need open space, but we don't know enough about where they prefer to hunt, how big their territories are, or what they do when their preferred habitat disappears. Kestrels that spend one winter hunting in a field may return to find it has disappeared under concrete and new shopping attractions the next winter. So MODIS is helping answer the questions that these researchers are posing. So data from this study indicates the sharpest kestrel declines are in the east. For the birds that show up in the nest boxes placed by citizen scientists, their success rates are very high. A single kestrel pair fledges three to four chicks on average. That's that's quite a few chicks for a kestrel. Yeah, that's quite. And the yes, and the puzzling problem is that they're not showing up. 
So the ones that do show up are doing well, but we're not having the same amount showing up that we used to have. Now in the West, the kestrels are showing up, but they're breeding weeks earlier than they did in the 1990s. And scientists discovered that farmers are taking advantage of significantly warmer winters by planting crops earlier to avoid the hotter summers. That makes a whole lot of sense to me. The change in planting draws the insects and the rodents, which is a bounty for the kestrels. And the kestrels are catching on and they're taking advantage of this change, which it's kind of nice to know that a change that we have made, these birds are being able to adapt to. And all this data was collected with help um, I'm sorry, all the data that we are collecting will help Arizona protect the American kestrels that choose to live here in Arizona. And um, that is through part of the MODIS towers, which is very, very cool. Yeah. <clears throat> I just thought that was in interesting. Kestrels are fascinating and they're adaptable, but there's a whole lot against them. Yeah, but gosh, I mean, they do have quite the uh, personality they're pretty much bring it on and I'll take it. So <laughs> it's nice to know that even with this climate change, it looks like they're adapting a little bit and they're taking advantage of things that are helpful to them. So hopefully they'll be able to make it through. Yeah. So our next bird, Arizona bird, we're going to talk about is the evening grosbeaks. And this beautiful bird winters here in the lower part of Arizona on occasion, but spends most of its time up in Arizona's uh, boreal forests, which I didn't really think of Arizona as having those kind of forests, but I guess yeah. we, we do in our very, very northern parts. But since, 1990, since 1970, the once common species has sharply declined in the east and making a eruptions less frequent, and grosbeak visits increasingly rare. So scientists started out with a small number of tag birds, aiming to discover where these birds go in the spring. Then, with numbers declining, they scaled up their tagging and tracking to over 200 birds so far. And using radio, radio and satellite tags, scientists plan to expand across more of the species U.S. range, because evening grosbeaks, be, um, their behavior is unpredictable in their roving patterns, and so this makes it vital and challenging to understand their movements. Plus, um, these birds are somewhat secretive, and they breed in remote areas, so trying to find where they're nesting isn't easy. So once a bird is tagged in the winter, it's interesting that um, they're tagging them in the winter. I guess because yeah. why, why climb the same thing with why climb a 40 foot cactus or a 60 right. pine tree when you can catch them, you know, in the winter when they're in smaller trees. Yeah. So once a, excuse me. So once a bird again is tagged in the winter, scientists can follow its journey. And this data collected from MODIS will help answer questions and could reveal bottlenecks or pressure points for the species and clues about what's driving the decline because scientists really don't know. Researchers have found evidence of climate change is stressing spruce and fir forests where these birds like to nest and diseases such as conjunctivitis, West Nile virus, or salmonella infections may play a part in the evening grosbeaks and 
to, to the evening grosbeaks in their decline, and tagging and tracking birds has highlighted the vulnerability of these birds and window strikes. So who knew? See, all of that is playing a part in the, the birds' um, challenges. Yeah. All this data, even if is collected on the East Coast, which the study is taking place on the East Coast, will help Arizona fast-track efforts to protect our population of evening grosbeaks with MODIS's help. So it's exciting that technology and science is coming together to help protect and preserve Arizona's birds and their habitats. Scientists finally get are getting their questions answered. The answers to the questions, excuse me, and with the knowledge that they get from those answers, they are developing more questions with more to come in the future. 